episode 244 of the Throwdown Thursday podcast. I am your host, Patrick Rahal, but you can call me Patsy the Angry Nerd. And uh, I am here uh, in Magenta Manor in the Pat Cave. And uh, as always, we are brought to you by Deadly Grounds Coffee, as we are part of the Dorkening Network. And uh, I am not here by myself. I am here joined by my co-host on the show, my co-host in life. She is the Baroness of Bordeaux, the Countess of Cabernet, the Mistress of Merlot, the Real Housewife of Transylvania, the Michael Phelps of Wine, the Queen of the Monsters, and an Honorary Lizzie, ladies and gentlemen, it's Ashes von Nightmare. And I'm really excited for this episode today. Yes. Because we have another guest, and usually we don't do like back-to-back guests for this show, but, you know, last week our guest knocked it out of the park, and I am really eager to kind of get into this because we have a really interesting show for you guys today. It's a little different than anything we've done before, and I think you guys are going to enjoy it. Yes, we are uh, joined today by a true crime writer, and uh, she definitely has a a unique perspective on her subject matter. Uh, We'll leave it at that for now, but uh, we are joined by true crime writer uh, Stephanie Kane. Stephanie, thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Now you are in uh, you're in Colorado, you said. Right. Yeah, and you were we were we were chatting a little bit about the uh, about the snowfall that we've. You say, how's the weather in Colorado? <laughs> Snowy. Yeah, same, same. We've been getting so much. It's just, especially over the past two weeks, it's almost like we're getting a a winter's worth of snow, in like in, in the span of fourteen period, days. Yeah. yeah, it's it's crazy. Yeah. I feel like Lord of the Rings. It's like, what about second winter? (laughs) (laughs) Stephanie, you, uh, uh, like we mentioned, you are a a true crime writer and you have uh, your latest book coming out on uh, March 1st from Cold Heart Press. And we're going to get into that a little more. But uh, before we delve into the heavy stuff, I figured, you know, we can kind of lighten things up and uh, help the folks at home get to know you a little better and, uh, you know, get help us get to know you a little better. So, we like to do a little thing called getting into character for our, our new guests. And, uh, you know, we chatted about it a little bit and uh, we want to give you a, a nice introduction to everyone at home. So, Stephanie, are you ready for your getting into character questions? I'm at the edge of my seat. All right. <laughs> well, that's what they say about the show. You'll pay for the whole seat, but you'll only need the edge. <laughs> so, as a kid, you know, growing up, everybody has their favorite snack treats. Uh, what was your favorite, like your go-to snack? Like if, you know, there was say there was like a tray of them in front of you and, you know, you got the choice of which one you wanted, you know, like, okay, you can have, you know, a, a, a Twinkie or a cupcake or, you know, whatever. What was the one snack that you were like, this is mine all the time? Well, actually, I'm glad you mentioned Twinkies because that would be my go-to snack, and I was a little embarrassed to admit it. No, there's <laughs> who does. Well, you know what's weird is Ashes does not like Twinkies. It's a weird thing. She does not like them. That just means more for me. Well, <laughs> the story is when my when my mother was pregnant for me, she craved Twinkies like they were going out of style. Like there was going to be no more Twinkies left. So she just just lived i mean like you know she ate other healthy things like a normal pregnant woman should but she just lived off of twinkies and ever since like i I, the the first time i had a twinkie i took a bite and i was just like no thanks nope i've had (laughs) yeah yeah i had had my fill in the womb i'm good (laughs) Uh, 
I read in your bio that you have two black cats. And as a cat person myself, I have to know, what are their names? Their names are Raja and Devi. Hey, how old are they? Uh, well, Raja is <clears throat> 16 and Devi is two. So Devi right now is closed up in a room with my husband so that he's <laughs> not in here crawling on everything and screeching. That makes sense. Yeah, yeah. That's, uh, you know, people don't realize that cats go through the terrible twos as well. I know. My, my friends with kids will, you know, post on social media and complain. Like, I can't remember the last time I went to the bathroom by myself. And I was like, me too, because yeah. I have cats. <laughs> they just they have to be they're like hey i see you're going into the bathroom i too would like to join you in the bathroom i'm just gonna sit there and stare at you why, uncomfortably why aren't you using the litter box this is so <laughs> now is there any specific are you just drawn to black cats or was it just kind of a those are the two you fell in love with and the fact that they're you know because i know black cats are the ones that um, as far as shelters go, usually don't get adopted. Well, that was one of the attractions. <clears throat> but we started out with a pair of black litter mates about 18 years ago. And one of them died and we, we got a new black cat. And then the other one died a couple of years ago. So we got another black cat. And it just, it just you know, it just went on from there, I guess. It's just your thing. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I and mean, people think it's bad luck, but you know. Oh no, it's good, good luck. luck. It's good luck if a black cat crosses your path. Mm -hmm. Yeah, especially if it's in your house. Yes. 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 So, uh, this is going to be a kind of weird question, like we uh, we kind of alluded to uh, off air, but if uh, it was plausible and uh, there were zero safety concerns, if you could ride any animal what would it be like through its natural habitat? Oh man, I think a tiger. Mm. Like as it just roams through the jungle. Yeah. That would be pretty cool. I'd like to see what it sees, where it goes, how it goes. I mean, I obviously would ride a shark. That's my thing. <laughs> you know, especially if it was like, okay, you can breathe underwater. You can go where the shark goes. I think that would be awesome. But yeah, tiger. I think following a tiger, because they're just so, there's something about them. They're just like so powerful. Like just looking at them, watching them walk, you can see all the muscles move. Yeah, it's, they are definitely majestic creatures. And they're gorgeous too. The coloring, the markings and everything. Yeah, they just ripple. Yeah, yeah, yeah they're beautiful. Um, so again, my question has to do with food, because of course it does. <laughs> Uh, what is one of your favorite things to cook for dinner? Well, we eat salmon about six out of seven nights of the week. So I'm pretty good at cooking salmon. Fish can be, especially salmon can be, that's an easy thing to screw up. Not salmon because it's really fatty. Yeah. So you almost can't overcook it. Are you sure you're not a bear? <laughs> I wish I was. We, we, we're sort of going towards vegetarianism, mm -hmm. you know, so we're, we're like compromising with the salmon. So, of course, we eat it all the time. Oh, the salmon is delicious. So, yeah. But 
however you want to do it, you know. Yeah, I'm a, a I'm a pescatarian, so like mostly vegetarian, but I do allow fish in my diet every now and then. And I love a, a, a nice piece of salmon. It's so good. So good. Yeah, it doesn't it doesn't even have to be cooked. You know, a nice sam piece of salmon, sushi, salmon and cream cheese on a, on a bagel. Mm, yeah. Oh, yeah. How do you talk in my language? <laughs> Why do we do this to ourselves? No, I want salmon. <laughs> All right. So, final question: If you could have one superpower, you know, and we've we've had this conversation with uh, some comic book folks, knowing that uh, the caveat to pretty much any superpower is you would also need to have an advanced healing factor. But if you could have any superpower. Like you get one thing that you can do, you know, super strength or flight or super speed. What would you, uh, what would you choose? Well, I, I guess I would say supervision, you know, not x-ray vision, but since as I'm getting older, I'm more and more dependent on glasses. Mm -hmm. I like really miss being able to see stuff and get every tiny little detail. So, you know, that. And I because mean, I'm a swimmer and I'm not a very good one, I'd love to be able to swim really fast. And really <laughs> yeah, go, go like the Aquaman route, you know, just yeah. zoom like a torpedo under, underwater. Yeah. yeah. I can see how that would work. And that could help your, uh, you know, combine the two. If you want without yeah. goggles, you could do it without goggles. Yeah. And see really well underwater, you know, like, you know, even like the, you know, again, bring it back to cats, you know, like the, the really powerful light receptors in your eyes, especially if you're down deep underwater, you can't see anything. Uh, I think that would be pretty It'd handy. Be really cool. Yeah. So that wasn't so bad, huh? That was pretty no. easy. No, <laughs> you're going to have a hard time tying any of it with my story though. No, no, that's fine. And that's, we just wanted to get to know a little bit about you, you know, where you're from, you know, uh, you know, where you are currently, I should say, because we talked about where you're from. Um, you know, just, you know, and, and a couple of thoughts like, okay, you know, you know, we, we want to give folks some random information about you because it's one of those things like, you know, you see posted on social media, like the worst part about being an adult is nobody asks you what your favorite dinosaur is, you know, and that's kind of <laughs> what this segment is. It's like, oh, what would your superpower be? And it's like, oh, no one ever asks me that. They ask what I do for a living or, you know, how's my blood pressure? Like, that's not fun. <laughs> so, Stephanie, you did a, a marvelous job on these questions. And uh, I feel like we've gotten to know you much better. So we're going to uh, take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to delve into uh, a little more heavier stuff. So, uh, we're going to have a, a zombie talk about coffee, and then when we come back, we are going to delve into uh, the context of your book. So we'll be right back. Everyone thinks because you're a zombie, you don't know good coffee. Well, they're wrong. There's only one brew that gets my seal of approval. Deadly Grounds coffee is my guilty pleasure. The aroma is so intoxicating. It brings all of my neighbors out of the woodwork. Deadly Grounds coffee. Coffee to die for and zombie approved. It's good to get a little deadly. Use the front door! Oh, they're so disgusting. And we are back. Um, so we're here, uh, as we said earlier, with Stephanie Kane, the author of Quiet Time and the upcoming uh, Cold Case Story. 
Now, this is a book that is coming out, uh, as we mentioned, from Cold Hard Press on March 1st of this year. And uh, the synopsis is a cold case story is about a family fractured along the fault lines of a murder. It's about kids made to choose sides and aunts who never forget. It's about fiction and reality colliding, how one shapes the other and how fiction has real consequences. It's also a very personal story of what it's like to ping pong between participant and observer, novelist and catalyst and witness to your own uneasy set of facts. Now, when I was approached, uh, about this book, I was instantly intrigued, uh, partly because I need to read more, uh, but partly because the subject matter is so different. Like there are a million different true crime podcasts and documentaries that are out there, but Stephanie, yours has a very unique twist on it uh, in that you were directly involved in this. So, can you give us a, we're obviously, we're not going to, you know, spoil the ending or anything like this, because that's obviously not the point of this show. We don't want to, we want people to go out and get the book and figure this stuff out for themselves. But you had, uh, again, a, a personal part in this. Uh, do you want to kind of give a little bit of background on uh, your involvement with this story? Sure. Um, first, I'd like to say that it's, it's unlike anything else I've ever written. I've written and published six mystery novels, mystery slash legal thrillers. This is not like anything else I ever wrote. And that's because the story is so personal. I lived it back in 1973 at the time of the murder, which I'll explain in a minute. I fictionalized it in quiet time in 2001. And I became a witness in the cold case that came about in 2005, partly because of quiet time. So I've been in this story for like, you know, 50 years of my life, basically. Uh, on the surface, it, it's the true story of the murder of a Denver area housewife in 1973. Her name was Betty Fry. And what makes it personal is that she was murdered on the eve of my marriage to her son. So in 1973, the day of the murder, I was one of the last people to speak to her. And I was also one of the first people to see her killer right after he killed her. So um, that's basically my, my initial involvement in it in 1973. And then 30, 30 years later, I wrote Quiet Time as a highly fictionalized version of it, basically to exercise my own ghosts, because I, I always had this, this sense of guilt and this fear that our impending marriage had been the catalyst for Betty's murder. Then in 2005, um, a cold case was opened into the murder after a witness, the killer's sister, saw an old rerun of an interview of me on public TV. She went out and bought Quiet Time, read it, and she came forward with a confession that her brother had made to their mother. So all of a sudden I was a prosecution witness. So I've been all over this story in so many different ways. Fiction, fact, truth, you know, crime. It's just, you know, it, it's a very personal story for me. Now, you know, you, you talk about writing Quiet Time as a, a, 
sort of a, an exorcism or a, a catharsis, how much did it help? It helped enormously because until I wrote Quiet Time, not many people in my life knew that I had had any involvement in that. I, w I was a corporate lawyer at the time. Nobody at my law firm, well, first of all, nobody connected Quiet Time with the murder. So it's not like people said to me, oh, you know, now we know all this about you. Nice to meet you or something like that. It was just more personal because I, the, the, the act of writing it down and trying to come to terms with it through fictional characters was very cathartic for me. And I thought that was the end of it. So, you know, I mean, I, you know, I did everything I could to, to distance the quiet time from the real crime and um, Bantam published it, as I said, in 2001. I was, I was very frank with their, them and their lawyers that it was inspired by a real crime. And they made me change a slew of things about the plot. I wrote it under a pen name, you know, my second husband's last name. You know, I did everything I could to, so that nobody would recognize it. And for, you know, like four years, nobody did. But, but the, catharsis, the catharsis was completely internal. But, you know, me getting it out on paper was the catharsis. It, it wasn't me going public with it that was cathartic. What makes a lot of sense. So this isn't the first time that we've heard of a, a book, um, whether it's fiction or nonfiction, about a cold case helping to solve, uh, uh, solve the cold case. You know, Meredith Salinger comes to mind, you know, helping to bring justice to the Golden State Killer. Mm -hmm. uh, how did it feel back in 2005 when you were contacted and your book and all of your notes were subpoenaed to participate well, in this cold case? I, I, I got an email from the cold case detectives and I was just, I thought it was a joke. I mean, I thought somebody was pranking me or something. It was a complete shock. And, you know, it had a phone number and they said, we'd like to talk to you. So I, I called them up and then I met with them for about six or eight hours and, and told them everything I knew about what had happened in 1973 and being, I was married to their son for about nine years. So, you know, I had a lot of contact with that family before and after the murder. And I just told them everything I knew. And, you know, at the time I didn't, I didn't know whether my father-in-law, Betty's husband was the killer um, when the crime happened, his kids all lined up behind him and there was never any discussion of the case. I mean, it, it was, you know, for the nine years that we were married, we didn't talk about the case. Nobody in the family talked about the case. It was as if it had never happened, even though their father had been arrested after the murder, indicted for first degree murder, the charges had been dropped and everybody just sort of moved on. Um, later, well, once I became a witness, you know, I also sat down with the defense because, you know, I didn't have any side in it. And I told them everything I told the prosecutors. And then what they did was they, they made me and, and my book Quiet Time <clears throat> targets of the defense. So, you know, they, they sort, I sort of had a target painted on my back. And they, they cooked up this crazy theory 
that I had somehow conspired with the killer's 78-year-old sister to cook up his confession in order to sell books, which was crazy because, you know, Quiet Time actually came out the week of 9-11. And so it had a very short life and a very quick death. And, oh, yeah. you know, the TV show that his sister saw me on was like a, a rerun of a canceled public TV show that ran on late night reruns for years, you know? So it, you know, it just, it just sort of came out of nowhere for me. And then, and then what the defense ended up doing was they subpoenaed all of my drafts of quiet time and all of my notes and correspondence. And, you know, that, that was, was very traumatic for me because I'm a kind, some writers write to figure out what they think. And that's the kind of writer I am. So if you take a pen and a notepad away from me, I'm like, where am I? You know? So during when they subpoenaed that, they were in they did it, they were invading my whole creative process. And so for the eight years or so that the cold case went through various courts, I didn't write a thing. I mean, it ended my writing career. I was afraid to even take notes or, or think about concepts because I was afraid that anything I thought or wrote down would be subpoenaed. So it, it was a really, really difficult time, really dif difficult time. And I, I had a great lawyer of my own who, with the help of an English literature professor, um, convinced the, the court to, to basically quash the subpoena. Um, because the fact of the matter is most fiction is based on fact. It's based mm -hmm. on some part of the writer's experience. And that doesn't make fiction fact. So the defense's argument was that each of these drafts of Quiet Time was a statement of fact because it had been inspired by a factual event. And so they wanted to use each of those drafts to impeach my credibility as a witness on the stand. So, you know, what, what happened was the, the English professor convinced that, you know, gave the judge sort of a tutorial in what literature is and, and how fiction can be based on reality, but that does not make it fact. And eventually he, he read in Chambers, I think, the first draft of Quiet Time, and he agreed it was fiction. I mean, it was heavily fictionalized. So, you know, the, in the end, my drafts and notes were protected, but... It had a really profound effect on me as a writer. I mean, I, I, complete, I was you know, in the middle of my career and I, I just completely stopped writing. Um, the other thing that made me stop writing was that I had to confront internally on a moral basis what I had done to fictionalize that story. I mean, I had taken real people as my inspiration, as you know, most writers I would say do, and I had, you know, made them do various things to serve a fictional plot. And I, you know, I felt I had to face, you know, what I had done, what, what a fiction writer does in a moral sense. Um, and I, you know, I, I'm able to face what I did, but, you know, it, it, it just really rocked me in a lot of ways. So when does the blog come into play? Because this blog is actually the basis for your book that is coming out next week. Right. So what happened is 
after the cold case, you know, in, in 2001, when I wrote Quiet Time, I had very few facts. I had some really strong memories of the day. And I went and I sat down with the DA who had tried the case in 1973. And he gave me some fragments of a case file. I mean, literally maybe 10 sheets of paper. Then I went to the courthouse and I was able to get the court file, which was a little more revealing. But that's all I knew. I didn't have anything else. And when, by the time the cold case was over, I got access to the entire, when it was over, and I was, my hands were untied, and I could talk to witnesses and, and think again and to, you know, write things down again. I got access to, with, through an official request to the case files from 1973 and 2005. And so suddenly after having just basically my memories, all of a sudden I had thousands of pages of interviews and, you know, witness statements and, and crime scene photos and audio tapes of interviews. And, you know, it was, there's just an overwhelming amount of information. So the first thing I did was it, it took me a few years, basically, frankly, to work my way through that. And then there were places where the record where I wasn't satisfied with the record. So I went out and I interviewed people myself. I did, you know, I conducted witness interviews and I reached out to experts and I tried to fill in all those pieces that were still missing so that I could have a, the most complete understanding I could have of what had happened. So then I, you know, I, I did that in a document that I sort of called my log. And then I, uh, I tried to write it as straight up. Can you hear me? Yep, I can hear you now. Okay, um, so what I what I did with that was, you know, actually, I decided that what I really want to do is explore this crime through the eyes and the words of other people involved. And to do that, I needed a whole new form for doing that. So I thought a blog with, you know, 500 word posts would be a way that I could go deeply into the various subjects but still discipline myself not to just go running away with it. Mm -hmm. So I, I did a blog and that blog became the basis for cold case story, which is now in book form as opposed to a blog. So when, when writing this blog, because you know, you're, you're an author, you've created characters, you've, you know, written about these characters, created lives for these characters. When you were writing this, this blog about, you know, these, these true events and real people, did you feel like you were writing characters at any point? Not really, because, you know, the thing about these people is I knew them when I was a young married girl, you know, and I was meeting them again in a, in a completely different way, 30 or 40 years later, in the context of an, of an unsolved crime. So they were really alive in my head as people. I didn't have to think of them as characters. They were more human, you know? I just didn't know because, you know, so much time had passed, you know, from 1973 until this point, you know, sometimes you just kind of, um, it's almost like you divorce yourself from them actually being people and sometimes I know some people uh, feel that it's it's easier to write about some people as characters. So I was just, you know, uh, 
wanting to know if, if you were able to still look at them as people and not try to characterize them. Well, actually, the hard part was that I, they were people to me. You know what I mean? The, the hard part was that they were humans and I had affected their lives in, in different ways. You know, some of them blamed me for the marriage to their son for, you know, being the trigger to the murder. So they, you know, they had strong feelings about me back in 73. And then here in 2001, I fictionalized them in a murder mystery. And then and in, because of the murder mystery, you know, I have to face them as real people who once again, you know, I've, I've gone into their lives, you know. Uh, so they were very real to me. And in fact, if anything, I, I held back in about them as people that, that I, I thought, whereas if they were just invented characters, I could have made them do anything I wanted, you know. Right. Yeah, it makes sense. You kind of, you know, you don't want to make them seem overly terrible or overly sympathetic. You know, you just almost want to bring a neutrality to them, you know, because they are based on people uh, with whom you, you know, had shared so much of your life at, at you know, at such a younger age. And I've been uh, I've been reading through those blog posts and and just kind of as an aside, I really appreciate your transparency on some of the the topics that you you talk about. Yeah, you know, you have as a writer, fiction or nonfiction. I I think you you know you have to stand back every once in a while and think about what you're doing and why you're doing it. And uh, the reason I didn't feel bad about quiet time is because at the time I wrote it is because I did everything I could to make the people unrecognizable. And the last thing I wanted to do was get, get back in their lives or cause anything to happen. Um, now it's sort of the opposite with uh, cold case story and the blog, because it's all out on the, you know, it's all out on the table. And I thought it was very important when I when I wrote it to be, if I was being tough on anyone, to you know, to be as tough on myself as I was on them, if I was being tough at all. Um, and uh, you know, they're it's they're not characters to me; they're people, human beings. And, and, it, and one of the reasons I, I, I wrote this, what, what's kept me on this story for 50 years is because I really wanted to know what happened. And part of knowing what happened was trying to understand how other people experienced it differently from me. So I, wanted, I always wanted to write it with the voices of other people providing some kind of perspective or context or balance and actually writing the blog enabled me to do that because I kicked off each blog post as I do with the chapters in cold case story with quotes from the record, from witness statements or transcripts, you know, of cops and family members and, and other people who were involved to get those different perspectives because all of, I wanted to get as much as possible a 360 degree view of what had happened. That was my real catharsis, trying to, to, you know, to get my arms around what happened. And I could only do that once the cold case was over and I had access to all this material. So that's what I've tried to do with cold case story is 
is tell the story. Yeah, because as much as it's humanly possible, you know, it's, it's impossible to tell the entire 360 degree story, like you said, from your own perspective, because you didn't see everything that everyone else saw. And even the way you're looking at things, you know, you know, just you know, using the the vision metaphor, like there's stuff on the periphery that you may only be tangentially aware of that you're not 100% sure. It's like, is that exactly what happened? Is that what I saw? Like, what did I see out of the corner of my eye? You know, like you don't have yourself 360 degree vision, you know, so you can't see everything that's going on around you. Um, so I think that's a really good way of putting it. Um, and like I uh, like I mentioned before, we got cut off uh, going through your your blog. I really appreciate you know the transparency that you have, you know, giving the facts, and you know, towards yourself and what you experienced. Yeah, and my role in it, you know, I I think I, in a small way at least, destabilized that family back in 1973 when I entered it and married their son. I think there is a very fragile balance, as there is in most families, um, you know, but this was kind of a little bit of an unstable family. And, you know, that, that's what kept me awake at night for 30 years before I wrote Quiet Time. You know, this terrible sense that that, that had played some role, been some kind of trigger for what happened. And when I found out about the confession, indeed it was. So in a way, you know, my worst fears were realized. But, you know, once again, I, I forced myself to face that, you know, and that's where I am. I think that takes uh, a tremendous amount of courage to, mm -hmm. you know, like, oh, this is how I feel. And I'm not entirely sure that the way I'm feeling is the way I should be feeling, because I'm sure, you know, there were conversations that you had. It's like, no, you know, it wasn't your fault. You know, definitely don't feel like that. You know, and that's, you know, generally what someone who is going to, you know, be in your corner and, you know, advocate for you, you know, is going to tell you. But to find out that, you know, you know, someone viewed you as like some sort of threat or, or intruder. I mean, that's not obviously that's not your fault. That's not something that you did. You know, that's, you know, a problem from their end. But, you know, I imagine that, you know, it didn't help, you know your state of mind any to find stuff like that out. Um, now, you know, you had mentioned that you had written many other books. Um, you know, were those books an attempt to kind of uh, exercise yourself, you know, of these demons like, well, I'm going to write this story, you know, this this crime thriller or, you know, this courtroom drama, I'm going to write these stories as a way to kind of you know, purge myself of these negative thoughts or feelings, but, you know, maybe it just didn't do it for you. Like, did you find that your experience was what was driving these, uh, these other books? It, it's, it's, that's a very perceptive question that you asked. And, and it, it happens to actually be true because in my legal thrillers, I, they starred a dyslexic female criminal defense lawyer who was a better lawyer because of her difficulties reading. And that character was an attempt to exercise a whole other set of demons that I had around practicing law. It, it was the way I purged the corporate lawyer that I had become by inventing a character as unlike myself as a lawyer as I could imagine and having fun with that character. 
So it was not to purge the murder demons, but it was to, you know, to, to get away from my own head and my own self as a lawyer by creating another lawyer who, who succeeded much more than I did as a lawyer because I took away from her what was my strength, which was reading, writing, you know, that whole left-brained kind of mentality. So I designed a character that, who, who didn't have any of that. So she had to access other strengths that weren't my strengths. So, so yes, and I have used other characters for that, but not that, to exercise the murder. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I, I think that makes sense. I mean, you know, you know, we, again, we spoke with a, another writer for, for last week's show and, you know, you, you find out a lot about, you know, when you're creating characters out of, you know, uh, out of the ether, uh, you'd be surprised how much of them is a part of you. Like the, the gentleman we talked to last week, you know, his character is this, you know, kind of like haunted, you know, young girl, like Victorian ghost almost. And he's like, well, she's got qualities in, in her that I aspire to, you know, and it's, it's weird because you wouldn't think that that's the type of character that you would have, you know, you know, the goals of becoming as far as the personality goes, but, you know, when you break it down and look at it, you know, like you were just saying with your, your, your dyslexic lawyer, you know, it's because she had, because she has these uh, limitations, she has to overcome them in different ways. Um, you know, where maybe something was easier for you, you know, maybe at, you know, maybe subconsciously you were like, man, I wish things were a little more challenging. So I could have, you know, you know, put a different type of effort into it, you know, come at it from a different angle. And I think that's, uh, that's fascinating. Um, another question I have for you is, uh, do you think the proliferation of, uh, and the, you know, a very increased interest in true crime podcasts and documentaries, do you think it has been helpful or uh, harmful to the cold case community? You know, on the one hand, the podcasts are basically the true crime aspect of it. And the cold case for me is really the effect on the people involved of not having any resolution for year after year and decade after decade. But I, I can't help but think that any attention that is brought to cold cases is good for the cold case community. Because it means, you know, more attention and, and more money is, is put into um, investigating these things. So I have to believe it's helpful. And I think that makes sense. Um, it, uh, you know, like you're saying, you know, any attention, any attention is, you know, good attention. You know, you know, you know, any publicity is good publicity type of thing. So do you have any, any plans or has anyone reached out to you? Any thoughts of, you know, potentially, you know, making it like a documentary or, you know, like, you know, a Netflix special or something like that. Are there any plans or is this something that you're like, no, I'm done. It's over with. I don't want to deal with this anymore. Well, back in 2005, 48 hours contacted me and I told them I, I couldn't even, I couldn't talk about it in any way, you know, because I didn't want to do anything that could jeopardize the case. 
and personally, I feel like I'm, I'm finished with it because this was my best attempt to, to give it that 360 degree treatment. So, you know, I don't, I don't personally have any um, plans or interest in taking it further than this, but, but, you know, uh, one thing that happened as a result of the blog is that somebody contacted me because uh, one of the red herrings in the case uh, was uh, a relative. And she, that was an unsolved case as well. And she asked me if I would send her my file on, on that person's case. Because for 30 or 40 years, she had had no answers to it. So, you know, these, the thing about a cold case is these crimes, if they're unsolved, um, they never die. They stay alive in people's lives and they continue to affect them. So because I think the, the basic thing that you were alluding to earlier was the need to know. And as part of, you know, the blog and writing cold case story, one of the people I contacted, you know, for more perspective was a guy named Howard Morton, who had founded families um, of victims of, of unsolved cases, basically, of cold crimes. So it's an organization called FOVAMP. It's, it's families of homicide victims and missing persons. And it's an advocacy group for uh, people, you know, who are relatives of people who have disappeared or have been killed in unsolved crimes. And I asked him what they're looking for. Um, he, he started it with his wife because their eldest son, Guy, had been murdered in Arizona sometime in the 1980s. And it, it was an unsolved case. And it just, you know, it just completely shaped their lives. So they, they started this advocacy organization after he retired. And I said, you know, Howard, what, what are you people, what is it the people, you know, who you work with, what, what are you looking for? Is it closure? You know, what is it? He got really angry at me because I use the word closure. And he said that the thing he hates the most is to hear people use closure because there is no such thing as closure for, an, you know, the family of a victim whose who's killing has gone unsolved. It's a wound that never heals. And I said, well, how about, you know, is acceptance a better word? And, he, you know, he, he agreed that acceptance was a better word. But basically what these I said, well, what are what are you guys looking for? Do you want, you know, justice? Do you want vengeance? You know, what what revenge? What, what is it you're looking for? And he said and he was speaking for himself and his wife and not everybody in his group, but but most of the people. And he said all they want to know is to find out what happened. And for me, that's what kept me going for 50 years on this story, just to know what happened. Because if you don't know what happened, you can't move on. If you don't know what happened, there's nothing to accept. So I think that, you know, the thing about these cold cases that, that's so haunting um, is that they, you, the people who are involved in them, the survivors, so to speak, they just... There, there's this big empty hole in their existence that can only be filled with information that they don't have access to, you know? And it's not that they want to see, you know, the killer strung up or anything like that. They just want to know what happened because that need to know what happened is such a 
basic need. When you've been involved in something shocking and violent, you know, and it, you know, it just, it, it's a big hole. Yeah, I imagine that's, oh, it's, it's tough to even contemplate that, to be honest with you. You know, if you haven't gone yeah, through it. Well, and you know, one reason is because unless you know the facts, you are constantly second guessing your own perceptions. You know, was I crazy to think such and such? Did I really see this? You know, did this, what I observed, did it really mean what I thought it meant? Mm -hmm. And it, it just, you know, it, it just eats away at you. You know, the inability to confirm your own perceptions is a, is a really, really corrosive thing. And oh, yeah. I think that's why, you know, one of, one of the horrible things about, you know, cold cases, that it just, you know, the, the justice system a lot of times doesn't want to invest in, in a lot of these crimes are, you know, are considered small crimes, you know, a domestic violence or, you know, not, not a serial killer, but just, just, you know, one person, a housewife, you know, who cares about a housewife? But, you know, the fact, so they don't, you know, they walk away from it or they don't put the, the resources into it to solve it. And then the people who are in that person's orbit, their constellation, they're just twisting in the wind, you know, for decades, questioning themselves, you know, not just questioning the system, but questioning their own perceptions of what might have happened. So, you know, people think, well, just finding the facts, finding out what happened, they think it's a trivial thing, but it's not. It's a totally profound thing. And, and that's what these cold case squads attempt to do, you know, provide answers. Lots of times, as you know, from, you know, the DNA and the DNA ge genealogy stuff that's happening, lots of times the killer is dead. But still, knowing what happened confirms the validity of your own perceptions. And, you know, then you can move on. Yeah, I, I, it's every time I hear stuff about this, you know, like what you're saying, it's like, oh, it's just a housewife. It's not a serial killer. It's just domestic violence. You know, it always reminds me. That's why they call it the criminal justice system and not the victim justice system. Well, Stephanie, I want to uh, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, I really appreciate it. Um, I'm if, if people aren't compelled by this story, uh, just from what you've told us, uh, I don't know what to do. And I know, I know you and Ash had a little bit of a off air conversation while I was uh, grabbing phone <laughs> adapter, but uh, you know, it, it, just reading what this was about and knowing that, you know, you're telling the story from the point of view of someone who is involved in it. Uh, it's just, uh, it's incredible. So once again, this is, uh, uh, this is coming out on March 1st. Uh, we'll have links That's to right. everything. And uh, do you have a, a specific place where you like to interact with folks who want to uh, get in touch with you? Is there, you know, a social sure. media or? Yep. I've got a website. It's called writer with the K.com. And I'm on Facebook. I'm at author Stephanie Kane. And frankly, I love to hear from people, you know, it's, it's it's very rewarding, even if you know they have criticisms or or questions. It's it, because what it what it shows is that, that your work is reaching people and affecting them enough that they that they care to comment on it. So 
it's very validating and i love to hear from people excellent so we'll we'll have all those links in the show notes um again thank you so much uh for for joining us for taking the time um you know for, this... for bearing with the technical difficulties yeah. we were but uh, this was this was a really awesome conversation, and uh, I can't wait to pick up the book. Yeah. Oh well, thanks. Yeah, we'll definitely uh, be supporting that, and uh, you know, reminding folks that because you know when this episode airs, you know, the book comes out the following Tuesday. So make sure that you are getting out and you are uh, checking this book out. And I know we have uh, quite a few friends who are into this type of thing, and uh, they're definitely going to be checking this out. I also plan on picking up Quiet Time too, and seeing the uh, compare you know, and contrast. Yeah, yeah, I think that would be a really interesting thing to do. It's an interesting comparison, you know. You, you see what I fictionalized and what I didn't, you know. Yeah, I think it's it's definitely going to be an interesting, uh, you know, com comparison piece. So, uh, once again, thank you so much, uh, and uh, we'll be right back. Shark Bites, Shark Bites Podcast. It's the greatest show in history. From the Dorkening Network, hosted by a nerd who's named Patsy. From movie reviews to tips on surviving the coronavirus, Shark Bites has it all. Follow us on Facebook and suggest topics at sharkbitespod at gmail.com. Available on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Uh, I don't want to impose, and it's perfectly fine if you don't want to, but if you would mind doing a promo for oh, us. Fuck no. no. I'm just kidding. <laughs> Hi, I'm Adam Green, the director of The Hatchet Films and the star of Allison, and you are listening to Throwdown Thursday. was an awesome awesome interview like i i didn't expect you know to kind of spoil things a little bit but oh but but it didn't spoil anything really because you don't know you still have the whole journey how it happened you don't know why it happened mm -hmm. you don't know why it took so long between the murder actually being committed and what 2000 and I was going to say 30, 30 plus years. You know, uh, for things to kind of come to a head and actually be solved. And I had the opportunity to talk to Stephanie off air and uh, about a couple of things that, that happened. And I'm not going to spoil anything, but 
oh my goodness, my stomach dropped reading through you know some of this blog and stuff. So the blog is what she turned into the book coming out, a cold case story, a bluck, a bluck, a bluck. <laughs> Maybe someday it'll be a bluey. But it's just it's. It's intense. And like I was telling her, I mean, I'm your typical millennial chick in the sense that I'm obsessed with true crime. You know, I, I love all of this stuff. And to the point where, uh, so a, n- a lot of people know about my science background. I'm a mad yes. scientist by day. But originally, I was pre-med in undergrad because I wanted to go into forensic pathology. So that's obviously something that didn't happen because life happens sometimes and things get in the way. But, you know, so I had taken some, you know, along with my science courses, some criminal justice courses. And speaking of criminal justice, Patsy, you have a degree in criminal justice. I do have a good degree in criminal justice and I've never, ever used it. So it's kind of cool to, you know, speak to somebody who has this in this firsthand experience. I, too, wanted to get into forensics. I wanted to do blood splatter. Right. Well, my love of forensics happened by accident. My dad was watching CSI and it was the original CSI. And you were like, oh, my God, David Caruso is so sexy. Look at him. Not that CSI. (laughs) (laughs) No, not that CSI. The original one, the Vegas one. That was so good. Oh, with William Peterson uh, from uh, Manhunter. Yes. Yeah. And watching... You know, and and for some reason, like the part that intrigued me the most was the person, the doctor doing the autopsies, who you know the the, the person who gets these remains and it's there in their various forms and puts these these pieces of uh, you know obtains these clues and puts these pieces of the puzzle together to help solve the case and i just thought that was so intriguing you know you know i I thought it was more intriguing than being a field agent and you know um the 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 blood spatter was definitely being a a blood spatter analyst yeah was definitely intriguing intriguing as well but yeah I, i think that um that show was good because it actually created this this increase in interest as far as forensics goes and if my knowledge is correct a lot of cold cases were open because of this that 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 show gaining popularity and people being like hey going into the fields yeah yeah yeah, you know a, a lot of people were interested in pursuing criminal justice and forensics so uh i i just i just find it also so fascinating yeah i uh I once did a 16-page paper on uh, different types of blood spatter analysis, and I handed it in, and my teacher afterwards, who was a cop for 40 years, was like, yeah, I need to see you after class. And (laughs) after class, he was like, yeah, you didn't write this. This was written by a forensic pathologist. And I was like, no, I wrote this. Like, I had to defend the fact that, you know, I had put all this work into it because... You know, he didn't think I really paid attention or, like, did much. And, you know, I also didn't have the book for the class because I couldn't afford it. And, you know, I ended up getting an A, uh, which I would hope. I'm like, no, no, no. This was my paper. I spent, like, three, four hours yesterday writing this. He's like, you wrote this yesterday. I said, yeah. When do most people write their stuff? Like, I was watching football and, and working on my blood spatter uh like term paper 
but yeah, I got an A, and uh, I ended up passing that class also with an A. But that was also whew, 22 years ago. A long time ago. So not much has changed. I still do stuff the night. I, I still do stuff the <laughs> night before, yeah. and people still like don't think I pay attention to things, and then I prove to them that I, I have been paying attention the whole time. Um, this is true. Yeah. But this was incredible. I, I'm I'm can't even put into words like how excited I am for this episode to drop and how just happy and honored I am to have this be able to you know have the opportunity to have this conversation with Stephanie she was utterly delightful and just so informative and willing to talk about everything which was just so appreciative so Definitely, uh, it's a cold case story by Stephanie Kane, and also check out some of her other works. I plan on picking up Quiet Time, and uh, to read as well as picking up a cold case story, to kind of compare and contrast and see, you know, what is the 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 fictional based on non-fictional how real it was versus you know everything that was said in the in the interview yeah it's a nice compare and contrast like we talked about at the end of uh, the last segment there but uh yeah we've got some uh, fun interesting stuff coming up as well uh we're not going to be doing a battle this week because uh it doesn't not, quite fit no but um, next week it absolutely will oh yes next week we are going to be talking about uh, again delving into first time watches for me mm-hmm. um Making my way through the Resident Evil series. Yeah, we've watched uh, the first three of them so far. I've been trying to get you to watch these for a while because I think you'd enjoy them, and, and you I've, have. I've seen bits and pieces of them over the years, but I never actually sat down to watch each film, you know, in its entirety. So I, I've been enjoying. Like I thought, the first one was pretty good. Mm-hmm. The second one was even better. I love Jill Valentine. Yes. Love Jill Valentine so much. And Alice is a great character, too. So I think we're probably going to get a, maybe a two-parter out of this. We could. You know, discussing the two, these, these powerhouse female characters. Well, let's and then not in discount the, Claire. Because... Well, I was just going to say, and then in the most recent one we watched last night, uh, I forget what it was, which one Extinction. it was. Extinction. Uh, Claire Redfield. Resident Evil Extinction. Why he's such a badass. Oh, we're going to be watching uh, uh, Afterlife coming up because that's uh, part four, and she's even better in this one. Like, so her and I... Alice team up. Oh, man. Paul oh. W.S. Anderson is doing a great job with, he, with he these female characters. He didn't direct the last one, but, no, but he's he, writing he, he wrote everything, yeah. I believe. Well, I mean, it's easy when you're writing for, you know, Mila Jovovich, you know, like... Fairly easy. It's like, okay, what would you, you know, what's a normal day with you? Okay, you know, you know, block fire with your mind and use it to, you know, incinerate a bunch of crows. That was Tuesday before uh, PTA, and uh, you know, so it's just basically, you know, writing stuff that happens. I mean, during when you're the week. married to your muse, I'm sure it makes life a little bit easier. It does. Yeah, I was gonna say you would know. I would know. <laughs> Um, so, yeah, we'll be doing that, and we are going to have a very special guest. We're very excited, and uh, we're going to wait and tell you who the guest is 
when we talk to her Ooh, teaser. on the show. Yeah, so prepare yourself for, you know, some great episodes coming up, crazy battles, and a project that we are working on that we can't say anything yet. Except that it's a project and that we're working on it. Yes, but it's going to be, it's, it's exciting. It's something we've never done before, and... I think it's going to be really cool. So definitely stay tuned for more information about that. It's going uh, to be awesome. You also need to go and uh, follow Will Mouse the Darkling on Instagram. <laughs> now, how do you spell Darkling? Uh, that's with a Q instead of a K. So Will Mouse the Darkling, all one word, with a Q instead of a K in Darkling. And uh, yeah, he posts some pretty good stuff. He's, uh, he's, he's pretty having, funny. He's having a lot of fun camping out at our house. Yeah, he's been uh, he's been hanging out with us. Let's see. his uh, He's got 43 followers already. He's not too thrilled about the vegan menu at, at our house, but um, he's, he, he's, he's getting well, used to he's it. He's eating a lot of popcorn. Like, that's his thing. So, I mean, that's... That's true. We, we you know, we share that bond of yeah. popcorn. Uh, his profile says, uh, Will Mouse, a darkling from Demonshire on the other side of Midnight. Uh, dislikes uh, favorite vegetable is popcorn. Loves meatloaf. Dislikes being stoned by the villagers. Capricorn. He did tell me that his mom's a better cook than me. I don't know. To about which that. I replied, "Go home. Make your own damn dinner." And he said, "Yeah, you know what? It's not that bad." <laughs> yeah. But he is enjoying hanging out with uh, Hobbs and his new friend Will Shark. Yeah, he's making some friends, watching a lot of TV, playing some video games. Got a temp job. Yeah, 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 making so some monies. So uh, he's contributing in a lot of different ways. So we're we're happy to have him here. He's been very well behaved. Um, you know, he was excited. We went to Arby's on the way home from uh, from the other side of midnight. So uh, it it's weird. It's you know he's used to eternal darkness and uh, the nineteen seventies. Yeah, so he's uh, he's having a lot of fun. Yeah, with all the technologies and stuff that we have. And no one's throwing rocks at and him. And no one, yeah, and he's not getting stoned. No. But, uh... He has, um... We've been sharing wine together. Yeah, he does he's, like He's wine. developed a taste for a nice dry red. Yes. So, uh, he's quite partial to a Merlot. So, you know, I mean, that's... He, just, he actually you know, referred to himself as Will Merlot the other day. Will Merlot, yeah. Yes. <laughs> I think it's because he was drunk. Um... <laughs> But yeah, g give him a follow on Instagram. He's uh, he's a pretty fun follow. Um, post pictures all the time. Mm -hmm. uh, he posted some tonight because he took one of those tests that show what celebrity you look like, and uh, I don't think any of them were were very close. Oh, except, I'll, have to, I'll have to look that except up. Except for one because he is precious. So so we'll uh, Andy Circus. We'll we'll leave it at that. But uh, uh, you have to you have to follow and find out. I don't want to. I don't want to say it, but it's not Andy Circus. So, <clears throat> yeah, a lot of good stuff coming up. Uh, Gabbery Sidibe. <laughs> I don't. You said oh, she's oh, precious. Oh, precious. Yes. <laughs> um. Also, make sure you check out the uh, sports show this week. We have another guest from uh, the Dorkening Network. We have. Uh, last week was James. Oh no, two weeks two ago weeks with ago. James from It's Go Time with Jay and James. So this week, we have Jay. So we'll have had uh, both of those gentlemen on with us. Uh, I think we might be doing uh, YouTube as well, you know, putting the YouTube video up as well. And uh, in the coming weeks, we got some good guests on that show as well. Mm. Uh, some folks who do some really great work. 
uh, out in the community. So stick around for that. And we have uh, we have a lot of hockey to talk about too. So we have a I'm, lot I'm excited. Lot, so a lot of stuff happened this past week. Much so. hockey, such excite. Uh, so I think with that being said, we will <gasps> see, see you, you next Thursday. Thursday.